Um, okay, so let's talk about adaptations, and in particular, two adaptations currently available on Hulu. Um, obviously, the one we're talking about most is going to be *Handmaid's Tale*, Margaret Atwood. Mm-hmm. Which and then I keep oh. calling *Handmaid's Tale*. There's no, <laughs> they're just handmaids. I feel like *Handmaiden* is probably also a thing. I think. It I is. think that. I'm just like acknowledging the typo that I've made for the last like two weeks. <laughs> it's the Handmaid's Tale. It is the Handmaid's Tale. Um, and also, um, these are both feminist as well. Um, Harlots, which is an adaptation of um, this collection of reviews written about 18th century prostitutes, um, and the the collection of it is the surviving collection of it which is uh from 1788 is called harris's list of covent garden ladies or man of pleasures calendar for the year Ooh. yeah um so let's let's start with handmaid's tale what do you say yeah let's do it uh hot takes hot takes Hot takes. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and be honest. I have not read this book. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's important. I had I had uh, some plans to read it before watching the miniseries, but I had to get my PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so I was a little bit busy. Um, I really love the casting. Yes, and you said in our podcast notes that you hate Elizabeth Moss. I hate Elizabeth Moss. I'm again. This is going to be another. um, I know you love companion controversy. I fucking love Elizabeth Moss. I know you love her. Yeah, I. um, Yeah, she's Scientologist, but other than that, I love her. God, this is going to make me sound like such an asshole. Um, there's something about her face. Mm, Wow, you are an asshole. That's what I like about her. She's not traditionally pretty. But it's not that she's not attractive. There's something, um, God, I can't explain it. It's like when you're looking at her, it's like things don't, it's kind of like Adam Driver. Like things are not in the right place. Mm-hmm. And it's, it kind of, there's something about it. Like, I don't know, but I think in this, role so like I never really um also spoiler alert I never loved Mad Men I was not like a Mad Men fanatic early the episode you know who I really loved in Mad Men was uh the the girl addicted to heroin his like girlfriend hippie oh yeah then when he when he was first married to Megan like there were a couple episodes of Mad Men that I was super into but I wasn't a Mad Men fanatic like Mad Men didn't change my life I I love Mad Men for the record (laughs) I really liked Elizabeth Moss's character in Mad Men I really really liked her there was something about her that she like never like I don't know it was hard to watch on screen and I don't know if it was like the way that character was going and because that character was just sort of um bumbling through things but like her storyline was always very hard for me to watch. 
And so I, in my notes, I will say I do not love Elizabeth Moss. Like, I'm not an Elizabeth Moss fan, but when... A Moss head. You're not a Moss head. Moss head. But when I watched the first episode of this miniseries, I thought to myself, there's no one else for this role. There's no one else for this role. There's something about her. She's very reserved. I relate. I think I relate to Elizabeth Moss a lot. Okay. I feel like she is, and that's maybe why I love her so much. And also every character she's played. Like, I relate to Peggy I, from Mad Men. I relate to the character she plays in Top of the Lake, which if you haven't seen that, have you seen Top of the Lake? No. It's on Hulu, and you should watch it because it's, like, it's about crime and shit. It's good. Okay. She's a detective in it. Um, and it's really beautiful. It's shot in New Zealand and it's super, super beautiful. Okay. Um, and then it's weird because I don't, I don't relate to her as Offred in this, in this show, but I can see what you mean that she is perfect for the role because Mm -hmm. there's something like very tense about her. She's very tense, Mm -hmm. like intense. And then just also physically tense. She just seems very like, um, guarded and like on edge I think a lot of times um I also love Samira Wiley mm-hmm. love, love 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 right love 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 so and there's yeah. a lot of orange is the new black did you notice the the casting there's like a lot of people from orange is the new black in Handmaid's Tale who else is um, in it she was, like, out, like, season two or three. She was one of Red's girls. Um, I don't know what her name is in Han- Handmaid's Tale, but she's the one who has who lost an eye. Janine. And she was, um, she commits suicide. She's one of Red's girls who's um, addicted to heroin and commits suicide. Okay. And, oh, uh, yeah. She's the new black. Okay. She did seem familiar to me. So I felt like there's some, and then I also think that the, um, and I don't know any of their names, but, um, the like master of the handmaids, the, um, the aunt, aunt Lydia. Yeah. That actress I Mm -hmm. was also on orange is the new black on like a couple episodes. Okay. She's good. I think the woman who plays Aunt Lydia is very good. good. Yeah. So I think that the casting is just, I also think that the casting of um, the commander and the commander's wife, like they're like spookily. It's really, really, I just think that they nailed it with casting. Anna. Doesn't she look like Portia de Rossi? A little bit. Yeah. Right. Like a more severe Portia de Rossi. Huh? So here's the thing about that casting, which I'm going to bring up now. I'm not a big, like, you have to be married to the text when you do an adaptation person. Like, for instance, with my book, if I was ever, by the grace of God, to sell it to a, you know, filmmaker or production company, which, please, please buy it. Please buy it. (laughs) I will take all of that money. I will do whatever you need to buy it. Right. Um, but this is one instance where I thought that the adaptation was interesting because in the book, the commander and his wife are older. They're in their Mm fifties, I think about, 
and the commander is not physically attractive at all. Whereas I think this commander is kind of a little hottie. Yeah, he's fine. Joseph Fiennes? Yeah. Yeah. And the guy who plays Nick, the driver, Mm -hmm. is very hot in the book. And in the movie, I'm not into him. He's like a little baby boy. Mm-hmm. He's also Latino. Oh, he is? He's either Latino or Jewish. He's like... I thought he was like Irish or something. No, he's like... um, He's like... Othered. He's other. Mm. Okay. Which, you know, goes into that article we looked at. He's othered. He's othered. Okay. So... Before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of the adaptation versus the book and not and in by no means comparing it, because I think that what might be more interesting is really. Yeah. Yeah. Is it to look at both of them as documents, first of all, of 1984, Mm -hmm. which was when Margaret Atwood wrote this book in 2000. What? 17? Is that what year it is? Oh, yeah. It's crazy. It's so long ago. Um, And to kind of really look at like because they're both um they're both saying things right about the times where they when they were written um it's I think that that's kind of an interesting way to look at this so I found this article in um this this little newspaper called the New York Times (laughs) acting like I was the only one who's ever seen this article Um, And it's written by Margaret Atwood, who, by the way, is another Twitter hero, like female writer, Twitter hero. Her Twitter is off the rails. Yeah. Margaret Atwood, a.k.a. Rhea Perlman, a.k.a. Yes. A.k.a. Joyce Carol Oates. I think they're all the same person. They are. I agree. Yeah. Have you ever seen them all in the same room together? Because I never have. (laughs) Okay, so in this article written by Margaret Atwood, she says, In the spring of 1984, I began to write a novel that was not initially called The Handmaid's Tale. I wrote in longhand, mostly on yellow legal notepads, so she did it the Patterson way. Oh, God. Um, Blah, 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 blah. The keyboard was German because I was living in West Berlin, which was still encircled by the Berlin Wall. The Soviet Empire was still strongly in place and was not to crumble for another five years. Every Sunday, the East German Air Force made sonic booms to remind us of how close they were. During my visits to several countries behind the Iron Curtain, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, I experienced the wariness, the feeling of being spied on, the silences, the challenges of subject... I'm sorry, the changes of subject, the oblique ways in which people might convey information, and these had an influence on what I was writing. So did the repurposed buildings. Quote, this used to be, this used to belong to, but then they disappeared. I heard such stories many times. Having been born in 1939 and come to consciousness during World War II, I knew that established orders could vanish overnight. Change could also be as fast as lightning. It, can ha- it can't happen here, could not be dependent on. Anything could happen anywhere, given the circumstances. So I think that's really um, a good portrait of kind of the impetus for this book, as well as um, second wave feminism and... Um, in the 1980s, the moral majority, right? And like Tammy Faye Baker and um, the height of kind of uh, evangelical Christianity. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tammy, the bankers. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Let's not forget about them. So, as someone, I, first of all, I'm going to get my white feminist card revoked uh, today <laughs> because I do not like Handmaid's Tale, the book, and kind of the series. Okay. Um, and which is fine. I think I'm ready to hand it in. I get free submarine sandwiches at Feminist Subway <laughs> every every week um, at White Feminist Sub- Subway. But other than that, I think that it's um, – I'm. I think I'm ready to take a stand. I'm ready to take a stand and talk about this. So as someone who has not read the book, what is your take on the adaptation? Um – well, I mean, I so saying that I haven't read the book doesn't mean that I'm, like, completely ignorant to, like, what it's about. Right. Like, I know that it's a feminist text. I know that it's uh, largely about stripping women of their civil liberties and um, treating women as, like, sex objects. And, I, I mean, I know that that's, like, what, it, what the aim of the book is. And I've read other um, – I've read Margaret Atwood, many of her stories, her short stories – and so I know where she's coming from as a writer. Um, so to watch the show without having read the book in its entirety wasn't like I was a total surprise. Yeah, I, I wasn't like completely in the dark. It's not like I like had no idea what was going on. Um, I I didn't hate it, but I I didn't hate it either. Yeah, but I wasn't like losing my shit about it either. I think that, um, and I've only seen the first episode. I have to see the second one still. Um, I am a big fan of, uh, of like, shock and awe. And especially, like, in my television, I want to be shocked. I want, like, shock me, shock me, shock me with that deviant behavior. And mm. seeing what Margaret Atwood is known for, reading her stories, like, Knowing what's coming, I thought that that first episode had way too long of a build before we got to the uh, sort of forced sex that happens, which I knew was going to happen, which I knew was the trick of the whole, like, why they were handmaids, right? Like, I knew that it was coming down to some sort of, like, forced sex situation, and um, I'm not a very patient person. I'm an Aries, and so I thought to wait, Mm. like, 45 minutes for that scene which to me was like when that scene showed up with the commander with joseph fines and his uh uh you know gwyneth portia de rossi oh, portia de rossi gwyneth paltrow-esque wife that i thought was um so haunting so hard to watch so beautifully filmed like for like a film i thought it was so well done that scene from that scene forward, I was kind of hooked. But all of the lead up. Um, oh, I also just remembered that I hate Alexis Bledel. I love her. God, we. I love. I love older, like now, Alexis Bledel. Oh, I can't stand her. Yeah, you. It's she's also someone I relate to a lot. So I don't know why we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> I just relate to these like cold kind of like. Uh, impassable in, in uh, boring boring women <laughs> uh, 
a lot of people have been losing their shit about it on they have. social media. And I don't think I'm at that point. I don't think I'm at, like, shit losing point with it. Okay. This is a great moment to bring in this article from Lit Hub that I found. It's literally written by the same woman who wrote uh, the Patterson review that I loved, Emily Temple. Okay. Um, and I hate this. I hate this so much because to me it kind of um, evinces all of the things that I was worried would happen with Handmaid's Tale. Um, so, but I, I loved her other writing. So Emily Temple, like, I know you're listening. I know you're worried. You're concerned about what <laughs> I think about you, as almost everyone is. Um, but I, I liked your other shit better. Okay, so this is called The Handmaid's Tale Adapts More Than the Novel. Here is America. And the crux strong of this title. article, strong title, however, the crux of this article is all about how um, this, tr- like, the transition in hands- Handmaid's Tale between, like, regular, normal, everyday life went to this kind of dystopian um, world, okay? And it happened when people weren't looking um, or weren't paying attention or didn't think that it could happen here, right? So she's drawing um, analogies between that and Trump's presidency, Uh obviously, Yeah, which I think is fair. However, I, it was weird when I was thinking, you know, this, this show got a lot of press before we, before it was released. Like I think like eight, nine months in advance, um, it was getting a lot of press. So I, this was before Donald Trump was elected and I felt very strongly that this was a, this was a show that would read really well in Hillary Clinton's presidency, right? this dystopian vision where white women, and this is the book also, by the way, the book is all white women, um, where white women are, um, their rights are taken, white middle-class women even, their rights are taken away, and then they're kind of sold off into sexual slavery. Um, And in a Hillary Clinton presidency, that would be like, oh, look how far we've come, right? we've got a woman president and this is not, you know, this is this terrifying thing that is not going to happen to us. But now obviously, uh, hell has frozen over and out of it (laughs) has come (laughs) the demon, the ice demon Trump. And, um, because of that, I think that people are drawing, there's a lot of paranoia. There's, I mean, rightful paranoia. There's a lot of anxiety and depression about Trump's America right now, which absolutely 100% is awful. It's awful. And it's in spe- it's especially impacting people of color, um, undocumented people, um, working class people, right? Mm-hmm. So to really... So what I was concerned about when this show came out is that it would take these things, which were issues in 19, the 19, 1980s. I think this book is also very dated, very, very dated. And then relate it to um, this, um, this time period that we're in, in a way that only reinforced the liberalism of Hillary Clinton that literally got us here in the, in the first place. And this article does that. 
um, she says, um, let me see if I can find, here's the most, here's the most terrifying thing about this adaptation. It's not just an adaptation of Atwood's novel. It is, of course, and it's a good one, but it's also an adaptation of another text, one that is even closer to my heart, the life that I am living right this second. America is in its current political moment. He who must not be named just say it. It's Trump. Yeah. Trump's Twitter account. Yes, your life right now is both text and context for this television show. Um, in a flashback in the third episode, June, Elizabeth Moss and her best friend Moira, Samira Wiley, go out, go for a run. After their run, blah, 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 they're called sluts, etc., etc., etc. Because June's card hasn't been declined by accident, all female citizens' bank accounts have been frozen, and in fact, in the next scene, June will be fired because it has become illegal for women in America to be employed. It isn't my decision, June's, bo June's boss keeps repeating. Armed guards are in attendance. I don't have a choice. One of June's male co-workers, who has probably had the desk across from hers for years, uh, if not longer, looks shiftily at her, barely summoning the grace to be embarrassed. Fucking sluts, he's probably thinking. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, <laughs> first of all, the issue with that, right? I'm gonna get. We'll get into this a little bit more in depth. But just like the the issue with that to begin to begin with is that working women, like any normal man, would be thinking that w working women are sluts. I don't think that's the case. Um, so then it goes on and it talks about the line of reasoning. This line of reasoning echoes. Another, of course, when he who must not be named illegally banned travelers to the United States based on their religious beliefs. He tweeted, if the ban were announced with a one-week notice, the bad would rush into our country during that week. A lot of bad dudes out there. And in here it was what, it was uh, formerly the United States. A lot of women don't want to be used as slaves in childbearing machines. Better not give them any notice either. You know whose justification for the Muslim ban was that it meant a com to combat terrorism, the number one bullshit American boogeyman since 9-11. Um, and it goes on and on, making this analogy between the Muslim ban and, uh, and Handmaid's Tale, which I think is just such a fucking false comparison. Yeah, I think that that is... Um... I think there's enough, I mean, I haven't, I also have not read this article that you're quoting from, but I think that there is enough evidence of Trump's America being shitty to women that could have been used there without having to go, um, like, I'm not too sure we can use the same sort of, like, intersectionality here. Right. Like, I don't, right. you, like, I think there's plenty, if, if we want to talk about how... The Handmaid's Tale is Trump's America. Then we we have got plenty to do that with just talking about women. But um, I think it's reaching. I think that's a reach. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of been the response to this from a lot of liberals is that like this is a dystopian portrait of a world that is so similar to like what's going to happen to us, which I don't think is accurate because there is no sense of money in The Handmaid's Tale. And everything Trump and even the liberals do at this point is determined by money. And and so that's kind of the issue that I have with Handmaid's Tale is that one of the big moments in it is when she's not called June. Also in the book, she, her name is never, never given. Mm -hmm. um, but when Alfred 
kind of in her in the in the life before the handmaid's tale time um first realizes that something is wrong she's being fired from her job and her bank accounts are transferred into her husband's name and it's like again not it's that second wave feminist idea that like there are women who have to work working is not a privilege you know it's not um it's it's not this it's just it's a very middle class idea of what work is and it's so much of a basis for this story this novel that it bothers me and it always has um yeah do you think you know what i think is curious is that i'm sure you've seen that like listicle that's been going around that's like um books that have jumped in uh in sales since the election of Trump. And I think The Handmaid's Tale is like number one. But I wonder where that's coming from. Because I almost feel like the reason book sales have jumped is because there was an adaptation coming. Right. I don't I think that's true. Think, because it makes it seem, right, that people are like, oh, God, Trump is elected. It's Our lives are going to be just like The Handmaid's Tale. I better go buy the book and see what it's about. Um, but I don't think that that, um, like, that doesn't follow. What's that fallacy where it, it doesn't follow? Like, I think people were are buying the book for other reasons. Um, it's a logical fallacy. Yeah. Um, but, like, 1984, right? 1984 is also on that list. And I can see why people might jump to buy 1984 with the election of Trump. Um, I don't. I don't think people are, like, rushing out to buy The Handmaid's Tale because Trump was elected. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think that especially because Trump was elected in part, and I do think this was true, Trump was elected in part because of misogyny. Like, I do think that that's true, even if I think that there were other things in play and Hillary Clinton is a fucking monster and all of that stuff. But I do think that misogyny played a role in it, even with women who were voting for Trump, like an internalized misogyny. Um, and so, you know, in that, I can see The Handmaid's Tale, but almost in no other ways, because so much of it is about fundamental, fundamentalist Christians. And, you know, that's not what Trump is about <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, no, I don't, I don't see the. Um, it doesn't follow. It's a that whatever it that doesn't follow. <laughs> it doesn't follow. You know, you can't like equate. I think one issue with a different issue. Um, but I do really like the way that the show. And like I said, we're looking at these things as two completely separate beasts, right? So acknowledging the fact yeah. that the book is about. Fundamentalist Christians and white people, right? And white women and second wave feminism. I do kind of like how the show is like making it new by the way that they cast people and by having an interracial couple and by having a black woman who, who is, she's a lesbian in the book, right? Yeah. Black lesbian. Yep. But, but having her be a black lesbian, I feel like is important. And, um, mm -hmm. by having the driver being a uh, Latino, um, or, or Jewish, whatever he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's other, like, um, 
I'm going to figure out who he is, what his name is. He is Latino or Jewish. That's all that I can tell you. Um, I feel like I've seen him in another movie where he played someone who was Jewish. So now I'm I'm just assuming that he's Jewish in real life, which is a not a good thing to do. Um, but I do like the way that the casting did that with like made it new or made it um, made it more accurate by representing. He's Italian. <laughs> he's a, okay. Wait, he's he's Italian, but his mother is Jewish. No, his mother was born in Hong Kong. Oh my God! I'm just gonna break this down. His maternal grandfather was of three quarters Han Chinese and one quarter Jewish descent, and his maternal grandmother—this is literally on the internet. This is insane. His maternal grandmother was of Chinese, English, Irish, Indian, Parsi, and Swedish descent. His maternal great grandfather was Hong Kong legislator Robert Kodawal, and his maternal great grandmother was Calcutta-born businessman Emmanuel Raphael Belilos. So he was not Jewish. No part of him is Jewish. He's a little Jewish. No, he's a little Jewish. His maternal grandfather was Han Chinese and one quarter Jewish. Okay. Man, he's he's mostly Italian, though. So Yeah. Okay. But he's British, too. So confusing. Either way, though, I thought... And so there's another article that you linked to me... um, by Think Progress that talks about how diverse uh, casting can elevate a classic. And it just is like an aside. Um, they talk about all the things that we pretty much just talked about, how the book is mostly white and the book is mostly like this sort of middle class feminism, second wave feminism, uh, Christian thing, and then how the TV show elevates it. But... You know, the takeaway from this, I think, is so good because there's this part where he's talking about Samira Wiley and uh, the director. And he says, um, I think it's a he. Man, maybe I'm being really sexist right now. It's a she. Um, Oh, it's a she. Okay, so she is also Jewish. Jessica Goldstein. Oh, wait, no, this is Miller. This is someone named Miller who says this. And I don't know who we're talking about. Okay, so this might be like a casting or producer or something. Okay, so this Miller person says, um, okay, and then there's the argument. This isn't the Miller person. This is from the article. And then there's the argument, so obvious in its strength, you'd think the Oscars would never be so white again. Quote, I wanted to cast the best actors I could, Miller said. Samira just has a light bulb inside her, and Moira in the book was a lot like Samira in real life. She's very engaged, incredibly outspoken gay woman. So these those things matched up nicely. She just brings such charisma and sparkle. And I 100% agree with him. Like, the character of um, Moira in the book when I was, like, reading it, I was like, this is Samira Wiley. Like, absolutely, this is Samira Wiley. She was absolutely the right casting choice for it. Yeah, and I just, I'm so obsessed with Samira Wiley that I'm just, She's so good. She's so good. I cried when she died in, uh, in Orange is the New Black. Why did they do that? 
They Why did they kill her? I can tell you why they killed her. They killed her because Black Lives Matter. Because everything about that character being being killed was a comment on the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. But I mean it was it was um I mean it was I think it was so smart that they killed her. I hate that it happened because she was my favorite character. I know, me too. But I think it was so smart because there are a lot of middle-class white women who watch Orange is the New Black, who love these characters and who maybe don't understand the Black Lives Matter movement. And when they all watched uh, her die, they were sad. They, as in, like, my mother. You know what I mean? And it's like, that's... They finally got shook. They finally got shook. They got it. They were like, she didn't deserve to die. And it's like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. God, I love her so much. She's so good. Me too. Um, So I'm going to keep watching The Handmaid's Tale. I'm going to do the whole series because that's what I do. Um, and we will hopefully maybe like report back once there's only three episodes up now, how many episodes total is there going to be? I think that there are eight and it just got renewed for a second season. So I'm guessing that this season doesn't end with the end of the book. Oh, Christ. How long is the book? I thought it was a small book. No, the book is pretty long. Um, unnecessarily long in my opinion, but you know, I think that, Honestly, I do think they've done a good job with the adaptation. It's a hard book to adapt um, because so much of it is offered alone and offered thinking about things. Yeah, um, I did think that. Which is really hard to do. The flashbacks were super powerful for me. I thought that. So scary. That if they keep, um, and I'm assuming that they do keep it up from what you've said, um, yeah. So I think it's really powerful storytelling. I, I particularly enjoy something that sort of starts right at like the moment of crisis and then slowly reveals what has happened through flashback. And I think that that's done really, really well in the series. And that's how the book is too. Like that's how, that's how the story is told in, in the book. And so I think that it's interesting that they chose to approach it in that narrative way. And I think that was absolutely the right way to tell the story, you know, as well. Um, There's some things that they don't, that they change that are actually really good. So um, you haven't watched this episode yet, but Alexis Bledel's character, I think she's done. I think this was the end of it, but like in the second episode, they find out that she's been having an affair with one of the Marthas, one of the kitchen workers. Um, and they call her a gender traitor, and then the Martha is hung because she cannot bear children, and so they're just, you know, they just kill her. And then Alexis Bledel is taken to this prison, and I think what happens is they cut her clitoris off. Um... I think. I think that's what, because she, like, just kind of wakes up there, and she has a bandage over her vagina, and the the aunt says, um, you can still have children, you're still useful, but you won't have these desires anymore. So I think that that's what, what it means. And that wasn't in the book, and I think that was, like, a truly horrific moment. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, uh, I don't know. Wow. I have a lot of feelings. 
<laughs> Primary of which is, please don't cut my clitoris off. Yeah, like... <laughs> yeah! Like, I... Um, yeah, wow. I kind of like Alexis Bledel right now. She's good, yeah, she was good in that. I mean, I don't um, like her, but, you know. I do, she's just so pretty. <laughs> Oh, I think she is not attractive. This is like, I just don't find her attractive at all. I don't even know what we have in common anymore. I really don't, <laughs> Katrina. This is, It took us a long time to get this out of the podcast up because we might be like RIP podcast. We have nothing in common. Our friendship is over. This podcast is over. And it all it's all because of Margaret Atwood, who calls herself a fucking feminist. Right. And you, look what she's done to us. So you can still take me to the airport on Sunday, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you can still bring me that case of wine, you promised. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I got you. <laughs> okay, so I I will talk about this briefly since you have not seen this show, okay. but I'm going to use this segment of the podcast to persuade you to see this show. And it is another Hulu special card, called Harlots. And bear with me. Because I know you don't like period. No, I know. Issues, right? This is already like things that I don't want to look, things that I don't want to watch. Period piece. Okay. Okay. So it's a period piece about 18th century British prostitutes. Uh, British and it people. is. I know, I know, I know. British people are awful. I literally have to watch the show with closed captioning on. But to me, this is a very exciting feminist text. Um,. Possibly more exciting than Handmaid's Tale because it's very uplifting, actually. Like, it's like it's like prostitutes doing it for themselves. Um, and this is also an adaptation because it – did I mention this already? It was based on yeah. um, this uh, text published in 1788, Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies or Man of Pleasure's Calendar for the Year. So it's about two warring houses, uh, warring brothels. Um, and again, it was kind of adapted from this original pamphlet that was put out that was designed to give upper class men a, uh, a little guide for what, what, what were the best prostitutes in London at that time. Um, so just maybe to close out here, I'm, I would like to read a couple of these. Is that okay? Go for it. A couple of the entries. Okay. So all of their names are kind of like dashed out like they do in the 18th century, which is like really fucking stupid. What? Um, and I, <laughs> she hates, she hates it. And I love it. I love 19th century in particular, but I'm really getting into the 18th century because of this. I would also like to say that the entire production staff is female. So it's like looking at sex and feminism from it's like entirely female perspective it's like the most female look at sex that i feel like i've seen on television not girls it's not girls yeah there's no judd apatow like putting right. his weaselly head in the scene and being like um i think it should have more feelings i think that there should be an ugly man that an attractive woman falls in love with because <laughs> of his personality even though he's a loser <laughs> um okay so I think Jason Siegel should be in this. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I hate Judd Apatow. 
Okay, this is an entry about Miss Holland, number two, York Street. No time shall pass. So, okay, so each one starts with a little poem and then goes into the nitty gritty. Oh my God. And this is like, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. No time shall pass without that dear delight. I'll talk of love all day and all night. Pleasure and I, as to one goal designed, will run with equal pace while sorrow lies behind. Those who choose to sail the island of love in a first-rate ship or to enclose an armful of delight must be pleased with this lady, who, though only seventeen and short, is very fat and corpulent. Yet notwithstanding, she is a fine piece of frailty. Her face is handsome, and her nut-brown locks, which are placed above and below, promise a luscious treat to the voluptuary. Her temper is agreeable and pleasing, and she is so far from being mercenary that a single guinea is the boundage of her wish. That was Miss Holland. Okay. Okay. First of all, I also really love this because it's like literally the the reaches of sexual euphemism are just extended beyond their capacity in these uh, <laughs> entries. Okay. So this is another one. Fast, this is the poem, fast locked in her arms and enjoying her charms. Every frown of old Carol defy, give such a loose that the all-potent juice shall per per pervade every sense in swim in each eye. <laughs> I think that's about coming in her eyes. Ouch. <laughs> oh, God. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, and then this is the description. Birmingham lays claim to the birth of this daughter of love, and under the care and protection of indulgent father and mother, she reached her fifteenth year, pure and unsullied. At this period, nature began to be very bay with Nancy, and a strong propensity for seeing life compelled her to leave her parents and enter into servitude. And being particularly attached to the sons of Neptune, she chose for her master a sea captain, whose name she still prefers to any other. A twelve-month had not elapsed in the captain's service before our charmer's feelings had reached their highest pitch, and the captain, blessed with a cl clean appetite, after a six-month's voyage, with little persuasion, opened her porthole, cleared her gangway, and threw her virtue overboard. <laughs> um, this is like nonfiction. Yeah, this is totally nonfiction. This is, this is 18th century nonfiction. Okay, I have one more. Okay. This is the poem. They didn't go too deep in the poem for this one. She didn't necessarily inspire poetry. Um, studded with roll buds and streaked with celestial blue. That's all the poem she got. Okay. Um, her truly ecstatic state never suffers the pressure, however severe, to remain but boldly recovers its tempting smoothness. Next, take a view of nature centrally. No folding lapel, no gaping orifice, no horrid gulf is there. But the loving lips tenderly kiss each other and shelter from the cold a small but easily stretched passage uh, whose depth, whose depth none but the blind boy has liberty to fathom. Between the tempting lips, the coral-headed tip stands sentinel, sheltered by a raven-colored bush, and for one half guinea conduct, the well-erected friend safe into port. 
She is a native of Oxfordshire, and has been a visitor on the town about one year, is generally to be met at home at every hour, excepting ten at night, at which time she <laughs> visits a favorite gentleman of the temple. <laughs> so it's like, this is when you can find her, except for when she's going to church. It's like very instructive. It's really beautiful. Um... Yeah, I think we better close it out after that because, like, my parents are in the other room and this is, like, oh. X-rated. <laughs> Maybe that'll get them horned up. Okay, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> Time to go. All right, well, um, any last words? I mean, we're Sutter Home Companion and we're back. We're back? We're not sending a drink to anyone. We're only sending a drink to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sending you six bottles of Chardonnay. What are you sending me? A ride to the airport again. <laughs> I guess I'll have to deal with that. <laughs> All right. Well, cheers, everybody. Uh, at Tati Supremo. Um, at Cat Prow. I hope you get laid. Yeah, everybody go. Yeah. Everybody go out and get laid. Be fruitful and multiply. Bye.